Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear pretty ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have really interesting things going on. Charles Slanza grew up in New York and went to school outside Boston, but he now lives in the greater Kansas City area where he teaches theology. This very intelligent man who reads all the time is married and has a son. In college, he double majored in psychology and Catholic studies. I wanted to ask Charles about two things. First, what is it like to move from New England to the Midwest? Doesn't that cause culture shock? What was adjusting like? Also, Charles has a lot of interesting ideas for projects. There's a lot of intellectual ferment going on with this bright young man. I wanted to ask him about these. Hey, Charles. How's it going, Tim? Life is good. I really want to get into your secret origin story. What kind of a kid were you? So I was always like a, a classic good kid. Um, all my friends' parents would always like kind of point to me or want me to hang out with the, uh, their kids. Um, and I guess in a sense you could say that I was I was kind of a leader, uh, pretty pretty quietly. It wasn't something that I was very boastful about. Actually, when I was in preschool. Um, the, the teacher gave me the nickname of the mayor because it seemed like I was the one who people would either go to for the problems I would be, or I'd be somebody who kind of like um, gives sort of senses of direction. Um, and I guess I've always kind of been that kid. Um, of course, I don't know if I ever told you about it, but I got my superpowers when I got bit on the butt by the rabid raccoon <laughs> when I was three years old. What? It's actually recorded. It's actually recorded on video too. I, I'll have to dig up the tape sometime to, to, to show everybody. Okay, I, I really want to hear this story. How did you get bit by a rabid raccoon, and why is there a video? So my parents, being being good mom and dad, wanted to to film all those happy little moments of um, kids growing up, and it was right around my birthday. And for my birthday, I got one of those big ride-on toys. It was like a dump truck that was battery powered and it was so cool. And so one, it must've been a Saturday morning. Uh, one Saturday morning we were in the backyard and my mom, mom was filming us, you know, having good, good home movies. And um, my older sister, Megan, of course, wanted to get on the, the toy, even though it was a dump truck and she was a girl, but she insisted she wanted to get on it. So me being a good little brother got off um, and I started hitting golf balls in the backyard. And so my mom's filming. And then all of a sudden, in the back of the frame, you can see a raccoon come around, my dad screaming, and then the, the videotape proceeding to, or the camera fell out of my mom's arms, and uh, that was the end of the video. And so, yeah, the raccoon pinned me down. Um, it was about the same size as I was, and I was still, I was still in a pull-up, which helped because the bite on the butt was, was a lesson because of that. But, and, and my dad took the golf club that was in my hands and with one swing just cracked its head. Oh my God. And, and killed it instantly. Um, but then I had to go get my series of rabies shots uh, because they had to cut the head off of the raccoon and bring it to the, the health department in New York oh, to geez. test it. And they, they, it was verified that it did have rabies. So uh, thankfully I, did, I didn't have to go through the, through the whole process there, but did have to get all the, all the shots. And then I made it on the local news too, which was which was a fun fun little deal there. Boy bit by a rabid raccoon. But you that was me. But you didn't get rabies. No, well, I don't. Honestly, I couldn't tell you how it all works. But 
when I read up about rabies, if you actually get it, it's incurable. Like there's no, there, there is a, a vaccine that will stop it from, I guess, entering into your body, if that makes sense. Yeah. But once you get it, it's, it's in there. Well, um, does it kill people? So what it does is it, uh, it, it's honestly, it sounds like something out of a horror film. You get so thirsty, um, but you have, it causes an aversion to water where every time you, you drink water, you throw up. Oh, okay. Um, and so you slowly, you slowly basically are dehydrated to the point where you, you die um, from lack of water. So does everybody die if they get rabies? Everybody has, I think it's a hundred percent kill rate. There have been some treatments where I remember reading about a girl who was bit by um, a bat who had, that was, that was rabid and they put her into a coma and let the disease run its course. And I, I don't know if they did anything else with her, but I think she ended up being fine because of that medical intervention. But uh, from what I know, if you don't catch it quick enough, um, there's really no going back, unfortunately. Well, I guess I'm getting off topic of the subject of your life, but I, I know that these raccoons, for example, are just highly um, persuasive or, excuse me, persistent mm. creatures. Because uh, I read a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker. It might be Barking Up the Right Tree, but it's it's a, a book about success and, and just et cetera. It's very good. It's very entertaining. He had these stories about Toronto raccoons. The city has spent something like $34 million redesigning the trash cans six separate times to try to keep the raccoons out. And uh, last time I heard, I think they're working on a seventh redesign because no matter what they do, raccoons figure out a way to get into the trash can. I mean, you could have this lead bolted down. Uh, you know, you could have it like covered with kryptonite. They basically get in. So I guess if this raccoon wanted to bite you... Um, He's going to be a pretty determined little bugger. Oh, yeah. No, I, I believe it. They, they're they super intelligent. And, yeah, the reason why I ended up on the local news is because they were featuring uh, – it was, it was happening to a lot of kids in the area. I mean, I say a lot, but maybe like three or four kids got bit um, in the whole, like, tri-state area. But they were putting metal bars on the sewer drains because that's where they were coming out of. Um, but they still were able to, to get out even with – with the metal bars. So anyway. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So getting back to what kind of a kid you were, um, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about that. What kind of a kid were you? Keep reminding me. Yeah. So I was, um, I really grew up in an awesome neighborhood where my house was directly situated against the, our three neighbors. Basically like think of it like a grid, um, where there was like four quadrants and the four houses, all the backyards intersected at like the origin. So everybody would be able to just kind of enter in and out of each other's um, houses and backyards all the time. And it was a really sweet neighborhood for that. Um, just really spending a lot of time outside really did learned and did all kinds of different things. I skateboarded for a little bit. We played football, wiffle ball, did all that. Um, I also was a, always a, a very big reader. I always liked to read, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the program, but at least in New York, it was called Accelerated Reader. They call it AR. And what basically what happened was you would read a book and then you would take like an online quiz at, in your computer class. And if you got a certain grade on the quiz, you earned certain points and the points could then be used to get like free P 
pizza or uh, an eraser or a sticker. And that, for some reason, was really motivational for me. So uh, that's what really got me into reading. And the big thing that I read when I was a kid was, was the Harry Potter books. And I would go to the midnight releases uh, for the book. And then I'd read as much as I could from midnight till probably, honestly, really just one o'clock in the morning because I was a kid. Um, and then read, sat on the couch all day long for the next couple of days, just, just devouring them. Um, and so that, that's what really got me into reading. And, and thankfully, I've still kind of kept that habit up, even though I think it's really easy to get sucked into the technology and especially the phone, uh, which takes away a lot of my reading time. Um, but then going back to me as, as a kid, talking about like the mayor again, um, I always kind of grew up into being that mentor figure for my friends. They'd come to me for advice, uh, one or you know, just somebody who they wanted to talk to. And that's what really led me to want to study psychology and then eventually getting into teaching because that's where really all my gifts and my personality kind of kind of came together. Oh, okay. Very cool. Um, so then what was high school like? So I went to an all-boys Catholic high school in the Bronx in New York. It's called Fordham Prep. Uh, you might be familiar with Fordham University um, in the Bronx. It's on the exact same campus, actually. And I always went to public school, and I honestly couldn't tell you the reason why I chose to go to Catholic school. I got really lucky that I got a really good scholarship to go. Um, and it's funny teaching in a co-ed school when I went to school in an all-boys high school, because there really was no drama of any kind. There was no cliques. Um, a lot of people played sports, but it wasn't like, oh, you don't play sports, that's weird. There was also like a really really wide um, spectrum of kids coming from different like socioeconomic backgrounds because you had some kids who lived right there in the South Bronx coming out of the projects. And then you had some kids from Ryan, New York, where some of the, the biggest billionaires outside of New York City live. Um, so I actually took the train into high school every morning instead of like uh, the bus or even drove. I actually didn't get my license until I, I came out here to Kansas. Um, and so I, I really did admire a lot of the teachers that I had. And being a teacher myself, I always look back onto some of those teachers who I really, really wanted to imitate. Um, and it was really in high school that I learned to really value being a hard worker and also wanted to keep learning and uh, engaging in scholarship. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, just briefly, I want to ask, um, what did a particular teacher do that made you think I need to emulate this man or this woman? I think for me, um, like one, one particular teacher who I had, her name was Dr. Lee. Uh, she taught my junior year English class. And one thing that she did, she pulled out the smartest kid in the class. His name was Sean Tracy. Everybody knew Sean, Sean was the smartest kid. And after we wrote like our first round of essays, she pulled his out and she wasn't afraid to be like, Hey, this is his, um, and was, we went through the whole essay and talked about why it was good and what made it good. And it gave me a model to kind of imitate. And so in my own teaching, um, cause I, I actually point back to that, looking at Sean's essay as like what really helped me become a good writer, because it really showed me what good writing was, uh, at least for like other high schoolers. But as a teacher, I've been able to use that in different contexts of being able to say, like, hey, here's a good example of something, because at least the way I learn, um, I need to see the example. 
You know, I was really big into Lego when I was growing up and I needed to, to follow the instructions of the, the, of the Lego diagrams. I needed to see the, the, the picture puzzle box. You know what I mean? Um, so that was one thing that she did that was really, really awesome. Okay. Um, just kind of keeping going with the, the whole idea of writing, just from yeah. high school and grade school, what did you ultimately feel like you learned about yourself? I think um, learning about myself, uh, um, writing is a, is a really awesome process that you can take the things that you read um, and be able to point out the different ways in which it, it connects to your own life. Um, so I remember in my senior year, um, I actually took, this was really uncommon for me. I was, I was your classic kid who had to take, take all the honors classes, the AP classes, like load them all up. But my senior year, for some reason, I ended up just taking the regular level English class. And I was taught by a, a priest. Um, his name was Father Stan Okonski. And what he did in, in our classes, he made us read like all the great authors. We read a bunch of different things from Hemingway. We read a bunch of different things from uh, uh, Fitzgerald. And what he would have us do is then write different essays or short stories or things like that, um, just imitating those authors. And even though it was different and it was difficult, it was what helped me really understand what makes writing good. Um, being able to take something that's already really good, like, like, um, like let's say the sun also rises and being able to imitate that style um, really helped me really see what good writing is and, and how anybody is capable of it. Yeah. If you can take apart somebody else's example um, and then put it back together, then that's got to be a good way to go. Okay. So let's move on to college. Um, I have this theory that college changes everybody. How did college change you? Yeah, Tim. I mean, honestly, I, I have to totally agree with that. Whenever I have students ask me about, you know, maybe going away to college or, or staying home, I always recommend being able to get outside of, of home because for that re very reason, it's for the most part, you get four years of a very, like a very protective, protected environment where it's okay to make mistakes and you can get to know yourself before it's, you have too many demands of the real world. And I honestly got really, really lucky that um, I met a very, really, very good group of friends very early on. But honestly, like the first, really the first two weeks of college, I was sitting up there. I would, I remember distinctly, like almost every weekend of those first few weeks, just sitting in my bed, watching Netflix on my laptop. I was watching Law and Order, like over and over and over again. And my roommate, uh, he was a, a lacrosse player. He'd, he'd be going out, making friends, having fun. Um, and honestly, I started to get a little bit down on myself because I was like, when am I going to meet these, these friends? Everybody said like college is going to be these great, these great times. And I distinctly remember I was supposed to meet another kid from when I, one of my classes. He was, he was going to meet, meet me for dinner. Um, and I was walking to the dining hall. And as I'm walking to the dining hall, there's this, this open field. And there was these three kids who were playing Frisbee. And well, when I'm walking by that field, all I can think of is like, there's nothing more college than throwing the frisbee around on the quad. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I really wanted to be a part of it, but I it wasn't just going to go ahead and like invite myself, like being a little kid on the playground and being like, Hey, could I play with you guys? 
And I kid you not, Tim, as I'm walking by that field, one of the kids threw the Frisbee and it was an overthrow and it fell right at my feet. And so then I had the option, I had the choice, okay, do I pick it up, throw it back, keep walking? Do I kind of like pretend that I didn't see it and keep walking? Um, or do I, do I join in? And so I threw the Frisbee back um, and said, hey, can I, can I play with you guys before I even realized what I was saying? Hmm. They're like, yeah, come on in. And so I ended up playing with them, uh, forgot about having dinner with the other kid, and ended up spending the rest of the night with those guys, uh, Paul, Casey, and Alex. And we talked about, we all, we had the same kind of interest in, in music. We all like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. And then the really weird part, as the night kept going, we started talking about religion and God, and they were all Catholic. And I was really shocked because none of my friends in high school would ever want to talk about that. And those three guys, which ended up being a bigger group, were the, the best friends I had in college. They were some of my groomsmen at my wedding. And it was all because of that one little interaction. Um, and honestly, like they were so influential for, for so many different things, especially with regarding the faith, um, but then just building a good lifestyle because they all had different personalities. And I know, Tim, you, you're a big fan of the, you know, you're the, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, and I definitely think that was so true with, with finding those, those guys and some other guys that really, really formed me um, when I was in college. That's a pretty incredible story. The part that jumps out at me is just how happenstance this whole event was. And I don't know, it's, it's like one of those movies, like maybe like a sliding doors, where if you turn to the left or if you turn to the right, you have just a completely different lifestyle. And I guess in that particular movie, then the rest of the movie splits between an A plot and a B plot. And one's like Earth A and the other one's Earth B. And... I don't know, one leads to happiness and the other one leads to tragedy. And it, it just makes me wonder, do you think we have those incidences a lot where it's just one little thing? Like maybe somebody smiles at you in the grocery store and, oh my gosh, it could have changed your whole life. You know, you could have married somebody else and had nine children and made a million dollars and et cetera. What do you think? Oh, I, I, I'm so there, Tim. As, as a Catholic, we, we have to believe that that God's providence is always at work while at the same time, he's always giving us free will to make those, those choices, those options. And so there's always a battle of wills between my own will. Um, sometimes I, I align that with what God wants in my life. Sometimes I reject it. And then there's also the, the will of, of some evil ones out there as well, uh, which can kind of sway us. If you've never read it, I'm actually rereading it right now. Uh, this book called pierced by a sword. Have you ever heard of it? I've heard of it, yeah. It's well worth a read. Um, just because it's a fictional account of um, some Marian apparitions used as kind of the driving force behind the plot. But what it really speaks to, I see a lot, is these random people all coming together because of those little things here and there and there. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a really powerful book. There are parts of it that are like not so, so well written. Um, but at the same time, I think it really does play into what you're speaking to, Tim, really well, that it really is some of those little things that at first we think don't really have that much of an impact, but, but really do. Because had I kept walking, I, I don't know, maybe, who knows, maybe I would have eventually hung out with those guys eventually. But 
they were the ones who introduced me to my now wife too. So like, it's oh my gosh, so so many so many different things could have just um, not fallen into place. Yeah, I don't know. Unless they were out there like eighteen hours a day, and it was just statistically like you know, inevitable or excuse me, right. inevitable that it would happen. Um, right. Okay, so you moved from Boston to the Midwest, and when did you do this? So a little bit more of a backstory will probably make a lot of sense because whenever people ask me, like, at least when I was in, in uh, college in Massachusetts, they'd be like, wait, why, why is your family in Kansas? What? Um, my mom's originally from out here. She was born and raised in Kansas. She went to KU, got a degree in journal, journalism, and then moved to New York back when, you know, papers and things were, were a bigger thing. Um, met my dad out here, started a family, and they always kind of wanted to get out of the New York hustle and bustle, and especially because it just things got so expensive, um, really living in the area where we were. And so my parents were able to sell their house and move out here. And they did that right as I was finishing high school. And so my younger two siblings um, went through high school here, and my brother's about to finish up college. Um, and so that's kind of how I got out here. And so I would... I would always visit the Midwest. I would always visit Kansas because my grandma's out here. I got aunts and uncles and cousins out here. Um, so I was re- always very familiar with it. And then visiting out when I was in college too, I, I kind of get a better feel of it. And it was really my wife, Emma, who was more interested in this lifestyle because we, we both enjoy slower paces. And Emma really is, and, and I am too. Our dream one day is just to be able to retire to like a farmstead and have everything very self-sufficient, nice little plot of land with animals, with food. Um, that's that's the dream right there. Um, and so it was really Emma who was really pushing for, for the move out here um, because she, she really, really loved just everything about Kansas. Well, it's a pretty interesting answer. I, I think we're going to get into just some of the culture shock aspects. And part of the reason I ask is because I just feel like people's homes oftentimes have a magnet underneath them. I mean, you could grow up in a war zone and then 10 years later you hear, oh, well, they have peace now. And so then you're like, hey, let's move back. You know, just people just I just think there's a big magnet. I've noticed that living in Kansas City, the number of people who move away for five years and then pretty soon they circle back. So I I just, you know, I'm curious, um, what were some of the first things that you noticed as being different. I guess I'm trying to get at the question of how much you missed Boston. Yeah. I think my wife's observations are a little bit better because I was always familiar with Kansas, you know, being able to visit. I was I was basically out here at least once or twice a year growing up. Um, but things I noticed and also from her initial impressions, because I'll remember the first time she visited me out here when I was in college, we uh, went to Target on the way home from the airport. And the person in the checkout, you know, the person checking our, our, our items out, just wanted to have a conversation, which was so different, especially from uh, New York and Boston, because you get in and you get out. Um, nobody's trying to make small talk, especially people waiting in line. No one wants to hear what you guys are talking about up there. Just go pay, do your thing. Um, the other big difference, especially from Boston, is the traffic. Um, my mother-in-law used to teach just on the other side of, of Boston proper. And what was really honestly like a 20 mile commute would take her about two hours mm. because of the traffic. 
Whereas out here in Kansas, you know, you want to go 20 miles, it'll take you under 20 minutes, always, no matter what, any time of day, even if it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, even if there's a major accident, no matter what, there's hardly ever any traffic. Um, so those are definitely like the two things that really jump out to me as, as being different. Okay. Well, what things took some real getting used to over time? I think the, the culture, culture in general. Um, now, obviously, this might, there might be some bias here because I don't know a ton of people uh, not growing up here. And, I, and I've made friends enough where I can kind of see these, these more cultural differences. But I grew up in a very like Italian-American uh, home style where I had relatives from all kinds of different levels, some people who had immigrated from Italy, some people who were first generation, you know, all, all kinds of different things. And so if you picture any of your, your typical like gangster movies, like Goodfellas or The Godfather, not saying that, like, you know, my family was in the mafia or anything. Um, there is the, no mafia. <laughs> just like those, uh, I, 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 for lack of a better word, just things being loud. Um, families getting together, things all over the place. Um, the other thing too, that was a little strange, um, was maybe the, 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 this, this might sound like a slight, but I'll explain it. It's just like the generosity or people are more loose with things on the East coast, or at least they're a little bit more upfront. So basically what I mean by that is like, if somebody wants to help you, they're going to help you. And if you ask for help from somebody and they don't want to help you, they're just going to tell you flat out. Whereas what I've noticed at times here, and this, this could just be a, a bad read, but what I've noticed here in the Midwest is sometimes you, you have a, a lot of uh, niceness sure. as, the, the, as the facade, and you might not always get a straight answer. Um, and I know I've, I've spoken with other people on the East Coast, too, who have, who have visited it or been around the Midwest, and they call it like the, the Midwest passive aggressiveness sometimes. I don't, I don't know if... I don't know if you're, if, if that, uh, I don't know, offends you or if it's no, like something. No, I, I'm not offended. I, I find cultural differences to be fascinating. And the minute you point out a difference, well, some people are going to view that as a plus and other people are going to view that as a minus. I, I just don't think you can have differences without people forming an opinion about one way or the other. So, so I'm not going to be offended. Oh, yeah. And I'm not like, there's not anybody who, you know, I'm, I'm saying like, oh, this person or that person. But I think just in general, there's, you can see that. And, and that could also just be my bias, too, because of the people who I knew in New York and the people who I know out here. Um, but that's just one thing. People are also very much willing to spend their money on the East Coast. Um, I think it's, uh, are you familiar with the comedian Sebastian Maniscalco? No, I'm not. He's a funny guy. Uh, he's got a couple of comedy specials on Netflix, but in one of his bits, he's explaining uh, the Italian, the Italian wedding. And, you know, the, the joke he's bringing up is, you know, Italians will count the, the checks in the, and they'll, they'll label it. And this is honestly what, what a look, everything from my baptism, confirmation, communion, even my wedding, all those things, you would, you'd get a document out and you'd write down everybody's name and how much money they gave you. And you remembered that value because then when it was that person's wedding or that person's communion or that person's birthday, you, you couldn't go over that value. Uh, it was kind of like a, if this person gave you this much money, you had to kind of match it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas, whereas out here, I think people are, there's not that unspoken kind of rule. 
Um, and that might just be like an Italian American cultural thing, not just necessarily the East Coast. Um, but then just even outside of the wedding thing, people are much more loose with their money. Um, and I think there might be appearances people try to keep up. Whereas I, I've, I've found that people here in the Midwest are much more willing to save their money, much more willing to live cheaply. Um, and not that one is better or worse than the other. That's just one other thing that I noticed. Right. Well, that's pretty hilarious that people are, I, I had no idea that this was going on. So that if I give somebody, I don't know, 50 bucks for their wedding or something like that, then they're going to write that down. And then if I, I don't know, have some big event or another, then they're going to make sure that that never goes over 50 bucks. Right. And it depends on who you have. You know, if you're somebody who's a, a multi-billionaire, usually you probably take that aside, but, oh no, I remember distinctly, um, just from some people who I knew or, or just relatives and it would be like, well, this, this person gave you this much money for your communion. So for their kids communion, you make sure you give them this. Okay. Um, now, how does this work if, uh, let's say, I don't know, we, we do communions or something like that, and you have one kid and I have five, and you give me $100. Does that mean that I have to give $100 back for each kid? Uh, usually, yeah. Usually, that, that sometimes that could be factored in, you know, you got 12 kids and the other person doesn't have any kids or, or one kid or whatever. Uh, but usually, yeah. The other thing that'll be a big factor, I always notice this too, um, was your, your godparents would give you more money. So like I'm, I'm one of four, uh, I got three other siblings and for Christmas, we'd always get money from my aunts and, and uncles and stuff like that. And whichever aunt or uncle was your godparent, you know, if everybody got, let's say 20 bucks for Christmas, you as the godchild would get $30 or $40. And, and we'd always hold it over each other. We'd be like, see, you know, I'm special because, uh, you know, aunt Linda gave me, Ten more dollars or something like that. Oh, jeez. Well, one last question on this gift giving thing. Um, it would seem to me like it would be a race to zero eventually because if I give you fifty bucks, then then if you can't go over that, so maybe you give me forty bucks, and so then I can't go over that, so maybe next time I give you twenty bucks, and so the next time you give me one dollar, and then we're at zero. So there's always a threshold because if you if you like dipped below like let's say for a wedding if you dipped below roughly fifty dollars it would be like whoa like unless you were like destitute it would be like can you believe they only gave me and this this thing happens i don't know if this just happens in my family um but from from hearing that joke from sebastian maniscalco about the, the wedding money i think maybe and he grew up in chicago so maybe it's just an italian thing i don't know but yeah there's usually there's a, a the lowest that you could probably go uh, would be about $50, but maybe you could dip lower if you were you know, on the streets or homeless. <laughs> if you're homeless, then you can get away with giving 25. Right. <laughs> okay. So were there any mistakes that you made when you started living out here? Like, I don't know, maybe even repeatedly made the same mistake before you just stopped making those mistakes. Um, my wife always and still makes fun of me for this. Because, you know, here in Johnson County, it's a, a grid system. And for the longest time, it took, it took me so long to really figure out, you know, how to get home without a GPS. Because I would, I would always in, inevitably take a left when I should have taken a right or a right when I should have taken a left. Which is funny because growing up outside of New York City, 
New York City is a giant grid where it's like, oh, it should be impossible to get lost in New York City. Uh, and yet I was still getting lost out here. But the other thing, and this, I don't know if I'll ever get over this. And, and Tim, I don't know if this is something you grew up with, but people out here always refer to like, okay, we're going to meet or, or they're going to say, let's park on the east side of the building. I have no clue where that is. I have no clue where that is. Cardinal directions is not a thing people use on the East Coast whatsoever. Um, and so I still, I can roughly, you know, let's say if I came off of the highway and I knew I was um, coming south, I could maybe kind of figure things out a little bit or I, I could look up at the sun. But I still, that's a, a mistake I don't know if I'll ever get over. I always get it wrong. I remember I was a lifeguard in, in college uh, here in Kansas at a local pool. And my manager would say, hey, make sure he would send me a text saying like, hey, cut the east side lawn today. And so I would just cut the entire place because I, I had no idea <laughs> what the east side lawn was. Are you saying that out there people don't know which way is north, south, east, or west? Nope. Okay. No, it, it's not something that people always like usually refer to, which I, I honestly don't know why. But it's a huge, huge cultural difference. Nobody ever says north, south, east, or west. Yeah, that's that's amazing to me. Okay, so what cliches do people from Boston have about people in the Midwest? So the, the thing, my mom always told me that she got this from being from Kansas and, and being in New York, and I was like, kind of laughed it off. But when I went to college and I told people my family, you know, I lived in Kansas, I'd always get the oh, where's Dorothy? Or, you know, this is a long way from home. Like, you, you know, there's no place like home. They, they throw out all the Wizard of Oz references. And it's kind of like, you know, when people, they, there's a dumb joke that you hear so many times where it's just like, okay, what, you know, why are you even saying this anymore? <laughs> because it's like, it's not even funny. But that was the, the big, big cliche. I think the other one is a lot of people assume since you're in Kansas that you're going to have some sort of accent. Okay. Like a like a twang or or you know I don't know they they expect something like that. So when you don't have an accent, um, they're kind of kind of surprised. Uh, but I guess it's I, that might be kind of the same everywhere because I always get, especially for you know back to school night, and I tell parents that I'm from New York. The number one question I always get from them is, "Why don't you have an accent?" Interesting. Um, I was just and, thinking that. Yeah. What a raft of cliches that are in my head. This is disturbing. It, well, it's it just, it, it, I guess, you know, we, we have our, our, our comforts and our, uh, I don't know, expectations or just whatever we're used to. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I wish, I wish I had an accent because especially being a teacher, I feel like it would make me seem like a mobster, you know, like somebody from one of those mob <laughs> movies and, and kids would be really intimidated, you know, <laughs> make, make them listen a little bit better. Uh, oh, for but, sure. You could say things like nice project you made here for your other class. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. Right, exactly, exactly. It would, it would be a lot more, uh, yeah, get the point across. But honestly, it, it does come out a couple times whenever, if I get really animated um, or really heated, sometimes an accent will come out, like a New York accent, or things like water or coffee. Uh, so those are some words that you can kind of hear it a little bit. I'm, I'm always fascinated with the, the Boston accent, though. I think that's, that's the, the most fun. And where, where I went to school, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a city called Worcester. Okay, yes. And, and, and Worcester is the second largest city in, in Massachusetts outside of Boston being the biggest. And Worcester has a similar accent, but it's, it's slightly different. 
which reminds me of growing up in New York, where basically every one of the five boroughs has a different accent, which is crazy to think because it's it's such a small area. Yeah. Um, but every single borough basically had a different accent. Huh. Well, yeah, that'd be interesting to know why that is. But, okay, so you don't have a Boston accent and you don't have a New York accent. And, I, I mean, to me, you sound like a garden variety Midwesterner. Gotcha. Okay. The other thing that might be peeking in for me, um, I have a bad habit of imitating other people's accents. <laughs> I, think I, I think I picked it up from my dad because my dad would always do it. And I, I try my best to avoid it. But if, let's say, like, if I'm talking to my, my aunt and uncle have a very, like, distinct Kansas accent, it, the longer I talk with them, the more, like, I think Midwestern comes out. But then if I'm talking to my aunt and uncle in New York, who have very thick New York accents, then that starts coming. So I always kind of imitate the people I'm around. So maybe maybe that's, maybe that, that there's there's a little bit of that coming out. Yeah, I, I think that happens to people. I think if you move, if you move to, I don't know, say Southern Texas, then after a certain point, you're going to pick up a particular accent. And I just think that that's normal because those are the people who are around you. Right. Um, okay, so say the sentence, park the car in Harvard Yard. Park the car in Harvard Yard. Okay, so it's not park the car. Okay. No, no. yeah. And honestly, my wife's family, there's... A few of them have a Boston accent, um, but not really. All of them, most of them, are just kind of you would you would consider like I don't know normal or no accent. Um, so it's it's interesting how you know you see in movies or on TV people playing uh, people from those places and they have heavy accents, but when you go into those areas, sometimes that's the case, sometimes it's not. Okay, so we did cliches about, you know, that people have from Boston about people here in the Midwest. Uh, and I think we did a bunch of false cliches. Are there some cliches that you think are true? Um, from for which perspective? Uh, from if I'm from Boston and I come to the Midwest and I, I had this stereotype in my head, but then I come here and it's actually kind of true. So um, when I told when, when my family was first moving out here um a lot of like one of my uncles thought that there was no trees in kansas he was surprised that there were trees and when my mother-in-law and my uh my mother-in-law's sister came out to visit us at least in the area we were in here in johnson county like everything is so close by that they were just shocked how many things there were to do um, a lot of people assumed that everything was spread out um, and you had to drive everywhere. But um, that was one of the things that, that everybody was, was pretty uh, surprised by. Okay. Well, let's take the cliches in the opposite direction. Um, maybe we could do the false ones first. What cliches do people from the Midwest have about Boston? From what I've gathered from people out here, who have even some people who have visited before, there's a lot of assumptions that everybody's like mean, um, especially Boston, that they have a Boston accent, because that, I guess that's a really distinct one. Um, New York, probably the same thing with an accent, um, or that everybody's like a city person. You know, being out here in Johnson County, which is more of like an affluent suburb, it's not so much of a lot of country folk. 
but I guess more parts of Kansas and, and the Midwest, there's a lot of people who are more, maybe consider themselves more country and they just assume people from the East Coast are like city folk um, who maybe don't know how to do certain things or have never held a hammer in their life before or changed a flat tire and things like that. Gotcha. Okay, so again, looking at cliches that people from the Midwest have about Boston, which ones actually are true? So I think um, this changes from, you know, if people you know, but just strangers in general in Boston um, can be kind of mean. And I think the same is true in New York. Um, there's actually a term for it from people from New York or in just kind of the, the area like of the Northeast for people from Massachusetts, they, they call them mass holes. Oh, mass holes. Wow. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, and so, like, especially when you're on the road, I'll never forget driving around Boston. I was on the interstate once, and there was those flashing signs on the side of the road that give you updates and or say things like, you know, road work from June 1st to July 1st, whatever. And it said, use your blinker. But instead of blinker, it said, use your blinker. You know, as an AH instead of an ER, because that's the case. Like when you're driving in Boston, people do not care who you are or where you are, and nobody uses their blinkers. It, it, people say it takes away the element of surprise because you, you need to, you know, you need to get your your edge there. Um, and so, what I've found as even though there's like that that tough outer exterior, um, Boston people are there's a, a greater camaraderie there especially surrounding sports boston feels a lot like a a big small town whereas new york is just this metropolis where there's all these kinds of different people from all different kinds of places and there is a little bit more of um like cohesion in certain places but for the most part everybody's on their own you know it's a dog eat dog world every man for himself whereas boston has a little bit more of a of a kind of communal spirit um and for the most part is when it comes to doing those those things you know that country folks say hey you're, you're a city folk you know you can't do this uh i think uh, there's a lot more people in boston who can kind of handle some of that stuff maybe because it's a smaller city um and it, i guess it depends on where you go in new york like let's say if you live in manhattan yeah you probably are a city person and you probably don't know how to to change a tire you might not have ever even changed a light bulb uh you know it depends on who you are um but uh, growing up in the suburbs outside of new york city um you know very few people had ever had any kind of an animal or contact with an animal other than like a, a dog or a cat you know it's like nobody had chickens nobody had a cow nobody had a pig whereas out here in the midwest it's very common even in your own neighborhoods to have people raising <laughs> chickens and things like that do you have people in your neighborhoods raising chickens at least in uh tonganoxy where um my mom my mom's at right now um it's a little bit more of a country town but yeah just right in town people have chickens in their backyards well it sounds good to me i wish i had some chickens in my backyard oh me too Okay, so when you came here, did you find after a certain point, hey, I've got to start being more diplomatic now that I'm in the Midwest. I, I've got to stop being blunt or, or, I don't know, did you just become more blunt for some reason? Yeah, and I think this kind of speaks back to what I was talking about with the, the money um, 
in the, the wedding gifts and things like that. Whereas at least just from my observations out here, if there's a, uh, people are very friendly and, and very willing to engage with you. But as you go deeper, at least with strangers or people you don't know as well, um, there's at least in this part of Kansas, there is a, a little bit less of like, Oh, I was just, I wasn't actually really trying to help you. I was just trying to keep up pleasantries. And so just trying to figure out that nuance, um, because growing up in New York, people would always be very blunt with you. If they wanted to help you, if they wanted to hang out with you, if they wanted to do this thing with you, they would either tell you or tell you, you know, like, screw you. You know, it was, it was very, it was very obvious. And so just kind of having to navigate that cultural difference a little bit of, of kind of being able to figure out, okay, like, what is this, per what does this really mean when this person says, oh yeah, we'll hang out sometime um, versus this kind of a thing. So just kind of navigating that, that little difference. Right. Having to kind of read between the lines, I'll just, I'll mention one that happened to me maybe two, three days ago. I asked somebody in kind of a position of authority, uh, you know, are we allowed to go to this event or are we just asked to not be there? And she said, well, I don't want to say no. And then of course I had to ask and translate and figure out, well, yeah, you really don't want me there. And, you know, had she just come out flat out and said, you know, we're only allowed to have so many people, I'm sorry, that, that would have been perfect. But just this, this dire worry that, oh, my gosh, I just told somebody no. Um, it, it is somewhat typical here. And if you're used to things being just a little bit more straightforward, uh, there's just any amount of, of translation that you have to do. Uh, I think that is kind of a Midwestern thing. Um, and, and I've spent time in New York and Boston, but not long enough to really know just how blunt people can be. So, no, so what, how would this person have responded if I would have said, um, am I allowed to go to this event? Yeah, it would probably depend on, on how well you knew them. You know, if this was somebody who you, you've only known for a week, um, they'd be like, come on, you know, the, the parties in a week or the, you know, the, the, the shows in a week, you no, know, you can't, you can't come. We don't have enough. Um, or it might be like, Oh yeah, you know, just come on by. It's, it's very open. They, they would tell you just very openly and honestly, okay. there's not kind of the, the fear of keeping up appearances, which, and I, I think the example you shared is just like a perfect example of what I was speaking to about the, the kind of passive aggressiveness. And maybe that's not a great word for it, but maybe it's just the keeping up appearances of not wanting to tell somebody no, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what the motive is. I think the motive is different in multiple cases. But I, I know around here, just because I grew up here, there's uh, it's there's an imperative to be nice. Yeah. Uh, they have these phrases, Minnesota nice, Iowa nice. Um, I grew up in Iowa. People are nice. They are genuinely compassionate and nice. And people will help each other out. But you also, this is a little weird, you have to be careful about how you offer to help people because... If you are a little bit too over the top, well, then you're trampling on people's independence. So people want to offer help all the time, but they're actually nervous and afraid to offer help. And so um, I guess a related question is I want to ask you, how does this play out in dating? Like a guy, I don't know, approaches a girl and says, hey, you want to go out Thursday night at 8 p.m.? How does she respond to things if she's an East Coast girl? I would, I, I think it's, you know, not having dated anybody in a little while, uh, 
I think maybe things might have changed a little bit culturally as, as things keep progressing in, in certain directions. But at least when I was growing up in, in the kind of that, that dating range, people would just tell you straight up, like, no. Or, or they would just um, tell you, you know, yes. And so I think people, that, that bluntness continued on, on there as well, that hurting someone's feelings wasn't a, a big deal. Nobody was caring, caring so much about their, how they were perceived by others because they were rejecting this person. Um, there's a little bit of uh, why would I bother wasting my time being nice because that's just time wasted um, kind of a thing. Gotcha. So it's a time-saving device in part. Yeah, it's like a time-saving device. It's like it's because just the the overall air, especially in New York, it's it's all about saving time because mm. everything is always busy. Things are always moving really fast. You know, you know, why would I go to the store right now? You know, why do why do I have to do this thing right now? Because it's going to be so busy. I'm not going to go right now. Uh, kind of kind of an attitude, and I think maybe that's probably where a lot of those those situations uh, come up of just being blunt because you know saying no or stringing things along. Um, or saying, saying, not saying no, or stringing things along would waste time. You know, giving people a flat-out yes or a flat-out no, it's pretty easy to make the case that you're actually being more kind and more compassionate because you are saving people time. However, and, I can't make that argument where I grew up. If I made that argument where I grew up, where if you just bluntly told people yes or no, um, not everybody is going to accept that. Right. So, but, but yeah. it is what it is. I guess it makes us do some verbal backflips to really understand people. So, okay. well, and Jesus, Jesus even commanded it. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. <laughs> I've always wondered about that um, from so many different angles uh, because then there's also the little white lies that people tell, but, but we'll just kind of leave that alone if that's okay. Let, let, let's get back to your cultural experience. So when you go back home, do you get surprised? or taken aback by differences now that you've been here for a while? It's been a little while since I've been back to New York, but I've been back to Boston more recently. And um, I always miss the, the cultural parts of, the, of things. Um, it just, it feels like a, a big little town where everybody's kind of connected in, in some way, shape or form. Um, the biggest thing that I miss was like how everything's within walking distance. How you don't always need a car and also just the public transportation where you can get around without having to have a car um, is really nice. And also I, I'll never forget one of the best haircuts I got when I was out there in Boston. And <laughs> so usually, usually I let my hair grow out a little bit um, before the next time I get down there to, to get another haircut. <laughs> That's really interesting. What do you love the most about the Midwest? I think the biggest thing that, that uh, I enjoy being here just as a, a father and husband um, is the cost of living because things are so much cheaper here. And yes, salaries are a lot less than places like New York and Boston. But I think, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think basically when you factor in how much things cost versus how much you make, I think it's actually, you actually end up making more money out here because things are just cheaper. Yeah, I think there's some cost of living indexes online that you could look things up and you can just kind of basically find out 
how do things actually compare? You know, like if you make half as much money, but everything costs a third as much, well, you're just going to have all kinds of extra money that you can pocket and invest. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, we could get and, super specific. Right. And, and just being out here, um, especially having now like a one and a half year old, there's just so many things very close to us that are either, that are either free, um, or just very cheap to do like parks and uh, zoos and, um, just little things like that. Whereas in New York, especially and, and Boston too, these are older cities, but at least where we are here in Kansas, everything's very new. And so they're building new parks or they're building these new things here. And it's always very like state of the art, very nice, well-kept, um, and that's one of the things that really, really keep us here. And I, I also hate crowds. I hate being in crowds. And so mm-hmm. you don't have very many crowds out here. Um, we live in a great area where we're like, if I, if we're going to eat out or we're gonna, I'm going to pick up dinner, it takes me five minutes to go to the restaurant right next to me. Whereas I'd, I'd have to, if I was in New York, drive at least 15, 20 minutes, probably wait 20 more minutes and then 20 minutes. You know, you're, you're, there's a lot of, there's no traffic out here. There's, there's a lot of things that keep me out here. That's cool. That's cool. Um, okay, so give me just a little bit about attitudes, about some major life things in both places, um, family and relationships. So the weird thing about New York and Boston, um, it attracts obviously a lot of outsiders. And one of the points you brought up earlier was about how people tend to return you know, to, the, to, the, to the Midwest, even if they went out for a little bit and came back. And I guess that the same is true of my mom. Um, but definitely, maybe this is just everywhere, but in New York and Boston, especially people get labeled as townies. Basically Mm -hmm. it's the people who, uh, grew up there, were famous in high school for some thing. Maybe they, they always were getting in trouble with the cops or, or they were the kid who TP'd the, the principal's house or, you know, everybody, uh, remembers them. And then they just stay in the town basically forever they become a bartender at the local restaurant or they become a cop or you know and it's just this this perpetual cycle of everybody staying in the same town and so basically the way that family's viewed it's maybe for lack of a better word tribal like why would you leave like if you left it's like you're you're leaving the tribe behind right 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 and so and so people very few people move away um and so that's one of the big things that I've noticed about family. Um, and the, also the other thing kind of mentioned before about money is people are much more willing to spend their money on the East coast. Whereas people are much more willing to save their money out here. Um, and I think it's, there's a lot more focus on appearances and achievement on the East coast. It really matters where you went to college or it really matters what grades you got. Um, whereas maybe out here on, in the Midwest, it's about graduating with the least amount of student debt or it's of being able to, to have these other life experiences. Um, and maybe the, the college thing comes back to there's, there's a greater em- f- emphasis on networks on the East Coast where your network is basically your destiny. Um, so, you know, if you if you're going to be an accountant and you, you go to this school because they have a really good accounting program and maybe the accounting program prepares you really well, but re- what really is good about it is all their alumni, I work at all the, the biggest firms, you know, things like that, where um, that's, what's going to get you your foot in, your, in the door. Um, 
which is maybe uh, maybe the same name everywhere, but definitely something I noticed on the East Coast. Okay, that's pretty fascinating, and I and I think you've uh, partially answered the next question I'm going to ask. Um, but maybe you could say a little bit more. What's the difference in attitude between the Midwest and and uh, out there regarding education? It's pretty much expected that you'll go to college nowadays. Um, and it's, it's kind of expected that you'll go to a quote unquote good school. Hmm. Um, you know, if you go to a state school, that's kind of seen as like, wow, you're going to a state school. You're not, you're not going to one of the private schools. And maybe that's just because, especially in Massachusetts, you have like 10 of the, the top 20 schools in the whole country, all in one little area. Um, but there's a there's kind of a there's a lot more of a, a pride in what school you're going to. Okay, and then you may have already touched on this one a little bit too, but different attitudes about work in both places. Um, work also is it, one one thing that I noticed at least talking to people here and out in Boston. There's a really big em- emphasis, and in New York too, on the East Coast. There's a really big emphasis on like your status, and your and it's tied to your your job. So you know, it's like, oh, I got this big promotion, or I got this big raise, or look, they just bought that house. What do you think? Or oh my gosh, he, he lost his job. Well, you know, it, it, there's a there's a greater your job is really tied uh, to your identity, and I think out here in the Midwest. While work is important, there might be a greater emphasis on on family and, and developing more of the person. Mm. Um, so that's that's just one thing where people talk a lot about um, how much money you have and what kind of a job you have. Whereas out here, maybe obviously that's still important, but people that might not be the most important thing. See, I, I can tell you from growing up here that people feel very awkward about talking about how much money somebody else has. If some other guy down the street has $5 million, and if you say that guy's got $5 million, uh, there's going to be a few people who, hey, that's that's interesting, that's nice to know, and then there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to cringe and just get a little tense. Uh, and, and the same thing with work things. You know, if somebody yeah. gets a promotion, that's usually a round of applause, a celebration, and all that. But it's, it's uh, at least as far as I understand, my own place where I grew up, that's not something you can use to lord it over anybody else. There's right. just a gigantic egalitarianism that, that is out here. And, and, you know, I think everybody does kind of keep track of some of those things. Tom Wolfe, the great author, Tom Wolfe, I just love this guy. Uh, he believed that everybody is always jockeying for position and everybody always walks into a room and they always size up who's on top, who's second, who's third, who's fourth, who's last, where am I? And people had status anxiety and he was just absolutely persuaded that every human alive does this. You know, if you had 10 girls go into a room, they're going to immediately figure out who the prettiest one is. If you have 10 intellectuals walk into a Mensa meeting, they're immediately going to figure out who the smartest one is, and then people are going to be, like, gunning for that position. That was kind of Wolf's take on things, and, you know, I guess he wrote an epically long book about New York City, so maybe that's where that theory came from. I'm not quite sure. Um, I I can see it, yeah. I just feel like out here... uh, 
it's really awkward and embarrassing to talk about life status. Like, where do people rank? Right side of the tracks, wrong side of the tracks, that kind of thing. It's just very, very awkward for people. I'm hearing from you that it's blatantly common for people to talk yeah. about it out there. And that, that could just be my bias of, like, the only people who I would really talk about it with are family members. Okay. You know, I, I, I never held a, you know, adult-style job uh, on the East Coast. I've only ever worked in like the adult world here out in Kansas, but at least from talking with family and even friends of family, um, it's really common to be like, did you see what they did to their house? Like, what do you think's happening? It's, it's, it's very, very likely to be like, oh, well, he just lost his job or oh, he must have gotten that big promotion. You know, th- things, things like that are it's a lot more common to talk about. Got it. Well, I, I'm in favor of those type of conversations. I teach personal finance and not right. from a matter of like lording it over people, but just from maybe a more personal note. I've got some distant relatives where on one side of the family, they were always very transparent about money. And uh, then on the other side of the family, they were always very secretive about money. And I, I just think money's too important in a family, especially for people to be secretive. So I, I'm just in favor of transparency. Uh, I just think uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant, but but that's my own little tangent on things. Yeah. So, okay, why don't we shift over into movies just a little bit? This might illustrate the point for people. Are there a few movies out there that you think are just 100% representative of life in New England? Um, so, in, yeah, especially in New England, there's there's a lot of good ones. The best one's probably going to be Good Will Hunting. Um, it's, it's a great movie. I love that movie. But, Oh yeah, such a, such a brilliant movie. Got so many good actors in there who, who deliver just really great performances. Um, but I think it captures a lot of the and a lot of what we're talking about. I think gets captured in that movie between the like, no, this is who you are. You're a part of our friend group. Like, this is this is your life. This is what you're used to. You're part of this gang. You know, this is what it is. Don't go off and do that thing. Um, and I think that kind of captures a lot of that that kind of atmosphere and then other kind of like gangster kind of movies like the departed also carries a lot of that too. Like your status is tied to who you are or who your dad was or who your, you know, things like that. Um, there's a lot of really good movies about Boston. Um, there's a lot of sad movies too. Like, like my wife and I recently watched Manchester by the sea. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, one, no, I don't know that one. I honestly wouldn't recommend it because it had, it was one of those movies that doesn't really end where like you're kind of, really left wondering what really did happen. Um, but what, what we liked about it was that, you know, a lot of the towns that they, they film things in and the towns they spent time in are towns that we're familiar with. And it's kind of, there's parts, I, I like watching those movies cause it's like, Oh yeah, there, there's that. And there's that. Um, but I, th- I think especially Goodwill hunting kind of captures, not that everybody out there is in some sort of gang or is also a genius. Um, but that it kind of captures that camaraderie um, with your groups that you're a part of. Gotcha. Uh, have you seen Silver Lining Playbook? Yeah, I, I like that one. That's that takes place in New Jersey, uh, which is very very similar to all these, you know, New York and uh, or no, is that is that New Jersey or Philadelphia? I sure don't remember. I know they watch the Eagles, but anyway. Uh, yeah, there's definitely parts, especially the, the biggest uh, thing that I noticed there is with the relationships between, you know, the dad and, and the son and the dad and the mom. Because uh, Robert De Niro, De Niro, I think, plays the dad. Yeah. Um, and, and he's the bookie. Like, the family I grew up in, there's a lot of different 
people were doing different things. And gambling was a thing that that a lot of my uh, uncles and their friends are all they're all part of that world. So that movie definitely reminds me a lot of growing up, especially with. The, the, on Sunday, in that movie, the mom always makes these appetizers to watch the football games, and that's exactly what my mom always did. Uh, she'd always be making the appetizers. We watched NFL football pretty much all day uh, on Sunday after going to church in the morning. Okay, uh, let's flip it around. If you had a friend who had never, ever left Massachusetts and you wanted them to see a movie that explained the Midwest, what would you have them see? This is this is hard for me to think of, um, because maybe I'm just not familiar with a ton of movies about the Midwest. But I do remember watching August Osage County. Have okay. you ever seen that one? No, I have not. I I, I want to say Meryl Streep's in it, and I think I don't remember the whole plot. But basically, it's a somebody dies in a family, and it's this funeral that's happening, and everybody's getting called back together. And they're all part of. They're all in different parts of the country now, um, but it just kind of picked up a lot of that kind of more country atmosphere, um, and the, the the little difference of nuance of how family is is viewed here in, in Kansas um, and in the Midwest. But can can you think of any good ones? Um, Star Trek, because of Captain James T. Kirk is from Iowa, and. Uh, you know, charming, daring, a little bit roguish, brave, resourceful, gets along well with the crew, taps into excellence from Spock and McCoy. I'd have to say Star Trek. Was not expecting that, but <laughs> after describing like that, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was from Iowa. So, um, okay, what should I have asked about cultural differences that I didn't? I think you pretty much covered it, Tim. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get into your personal projects. Uh, tell us about your blog. So this is probably, I think it's three years ago now. Um, me and a, a couple of friends of mine just were, were talking about just our different experiences of, of growing up um, and just commenting and looking at what's going on, especially in the United States, but I think more in the world as well, that there's a lack of... Um, great home lives, uh, especially when it relates to men and their fathers. Mm. And there is a Bishop Olmstead from Phoenix, Arizona, put out this document now, probably almost 10 years ago, called Into the Breach. And he's talking about uh, this problem in one of his sections about how either there, there are families where there's no dad, you know, dad's gone, or dad is there, but he's always working all the time, or he's got these other things that he's focused on. Um, or he's dealing with substance abuse and how that wound really affects men in the next generation and especially how they relate to God because, you know, we call God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. And it might be easy for people to see Jesus. Maybe it's easy. Maybe it's not to see the Holy spirit, but for people growing up in that kind of a background, it's hard for men to see God as father. If their picture of father was not great. And so basically what this website was dedicated to was kind of touching on that, that topic um, in different ways. And so it's a bunch of different musings. Some, some of the things I write about touch directly on that. Uh, some of them don't. But at the end of the day, it's all about helping others kind of understand their identity as a beloved son of, of their heavenly father 
even if their experience here on earth of their earthly father was different, um, helping us not muddy that picture of our heavenly father and also understanding how none of us are really perfect and to be able to forgive uh, the, the failings of our own earthly parents because in some cases, you know, they're at fault and we can forgive them and in other cases, it's not their fault. Um, and we have to kind of uh, get over, over some of those roadblocks. Would it be fair to say that one of your premises that you have is, is that if people finally get the opportunity to feel like a, a loved son, then they'll be more able to flip it around and be a good father? Entirely, Tim. Uh, the, the biggest thing that really drove this, when I was going through my marriage prep with my wife, um, we, we learned about this one statistic where, um, and it's pretty common to know about this, it gets thrown around a lot, but in, in homes where the father uh, doesn't go to church, I think it's like one in three kids uh, will remain in the church when they become adults. Mm. But, you know, the lack of that, that father figure. If dad just goes to the church, he doesn't have to say he believes anything. He just has to show up. I think it's like 80% remain. And so uh, what that what that really shows me, at least, is if, if we can help people, you know, it's just, it's just this cycle. If we can have good families... That, that raise good kids who then go on to have their own good families or their own vocations that, that may, maybe not are tied to a, a direct family of theirs. So much of this will spread to the rest of the culture. Um, so that's kind of kind of the, the, the premise there. So I think, yeah, I think you're hitting on it right there, Tim. Okay, okay. Um, what do you ultimately hope to accomplish with the blog? Um, basically, it might be kind of a selfish goal, but for me to, to understand that truth, that, that there is a God out there who is a father and he loves me like his son. And hopefully by extension of that, other, other men, and what I found too is just people who subscribe to the blog, uh, it's also not men as well, that, that other people who, like women are in, in enjoying some of this content as well. But the, the hope is that we could kind of break this cycle where, where that, uh, that affirmation of that identity of a as a beloved son will then carry on to the next generation and the next generation, the next generation. Okay. Well, I know you also are either starting a podcast or you have a podcast. I'd, I'd love to know what that is all about and what you hope to do with it. So kind of as an extension of, of that, more of like a niche goal, something that I found as being a, uh, uh, high school teachers, a lot of the times parents will make comments like, oh my gosh, this class sounds really interesting. I just wish I could take it. Um, and I know there's there's some sort of, you could find resources online, you can buy textbooks, you can do all these kinds of different things of, of getting like a the theology part of a Catholic education. But there's, I, I couldn't think of a really good comprehensive curriculum that's out there that's really accessible and that's free. And so one project that I've been working on is basically creating a high school level curriculum that would be in a very conversational format. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Catholic stuff, you should know, but yeah. it's a podcast. And I really like how they, 
they go about discussing topics where it's not like a lecture, um, but there's a trade-off and there's discussion. And so I've been in the process, I haven't recorded anything yet, but I'm in the process of, of getting everything outlined and situated because it's just, I think it, it will be a good project for those parents who've been reaching out. I think it'll be a great project for high schoolers who want to, you know, hear it again. Um, it, could, it could be a good tool in the classroom. But the other big thing is I think so many problems in the views of what of the Catholic Church or in the or just even people who are Catholic, there's a lack of formation, a lack of solid formation. And so hopefully this could be a, a re-education for some people who who want to seek it out um, or for people who are interested, because, you know, I can read so many things online of, of, of people uh, thinking what they, they, they think they know what the Catholic church is all about, or they think they know what Catholicism is all about, but the, it, it, it's wrong. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. And I've been able to, to teach it and I've been able to learn it, that it, it could be a really, really good project for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Just to clarify for people, just because I, maybe formation turns into a Catholic word where people say, Oh, you know, some of these Catholics last formation. What people mean is, is that they don't know the details. They don't know the nuts and bolts, you know. So, for example, uh, I guess Fulton Sheen, uh, who was a very super famous priest in the 1950s, had a top-rated television show across the United States, etc. Pretty funny guy, too. He would say things like, there's probably about five people on earth who truly disagree with the Catholic Church, but there's millions upon millions of people who think they know what the Catholic Church says, and they disagree with what they think it says. I Very think there's true. a lot of truth and I, to that. I, I think, and that's exactly kind of what, what I'm getting at, because this, this past school year, I was able to teach our apologetics class, which is basically helping convince people that the Catholic faith is reasonable, and it's not just this like magical hocus-pocus kind of thing. Um, and just seeing so many kids realize, like, oh, shoot, Maybe I don't agree with that point about the Catholic Church. Maybe I don't agree with con their, the church's teaching on contraception or whatever. But I kind of understand now why they teach what they teach, um, and and helping people kind of come around to that because it's it's really simple when it, when it's when it's taught really well and it's presented really well. But it can easily get muddied very 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 quickly um, without that that good teaching. So. So not to really toot my own horn, but I, I feel like I've, I've been able to grasp a lot of this material really well. And I want to be able to share it with people because like the, the blog, hopefully it could just make those minuscule impacts, which can then kind of snowball um, to bigger things. Yeah. So I, you've already kind of hinted at this a little bit, but we, I've mentioned you're a teacher. Uh, what makes you most satisfied with teaching? Uh, the biggest thing, and, and you might experience this too, Tim, is, is after class when a student comes up and and asks a deeper question. And it really shows you, like, hey, that kid was really engaged. Um, and this kid this kid wants to have a, a real conversation. And those are the moments as a, as a teacher that make me the proudest uh, because it shows that they're, they're taking it seriously. Or the, the real exciting moment, especially with the, the material I teach, especially with theology, is seeing kids' hearts opened up because I've, I've dealt with very many stubborn kids before. Slowly we'll walk through the semester, we slowly walk through the year, that heart starts to open up to Jesus, um, and that really, really is awesome. 
That's cool. That's very cool. Um, you also coach a few extracurriculars, like bowling. Um, what do these extracurriculars do for the kids? I, and part of the reason, this is just going to be a little bit left field for me, but so I've been reading about Finland. They're number one in the world in education. And one of the many differences they have is they just simply don't do extracurriculars of any kind. If you wanted to do a sport, they would say, hey, we think that's great. That's down the street at the rec center. You know, their schools do zero sports and do zero plays, and I don't think they do choirs. They didn't do any of that stuff. Um, but they're number one in the world. So what do you think the extracurriculars you do do for kids? Well, I think not, just not knowing anything about Finland's education system, it seems like it's probably – they probably get to being number one because of an objective rating of test scores or this kind of thing, or even maybe – there, there's some sort of objective rating of their happiness as a student or whatnot. Sure. I think the, the co-curriculars, the extracurriculars, those kinds of things really help shape and form the whole person. And what I've noticed the most when I was coaching bowling is that, and I never even coached this. It was just what kids would naturally do. You, you know, you get um, assigned a lane with different kids from different schools, and the kids would just be very friendly with one another. They'd be cheering each other on. Sometimes they'd even... Uh, get to know them so well that they became friends outside of the bowling alley. And so the thing that I saw was just their ability to build community with people um, from a different school and even people they were competing directly against. It was, and maybe it's just a sport because it's bowling and it's not as competitive as some other uh, sports out there. But yeah, that, that was the one thing that I noticed is how you can really build community um, and focus on challenging things that aren't just academic. That's awesome. My dad was a coach for 53 years. Actually, no longer. I'm sorry. I think from age 23 to 80, so 57 years, he coached. And uh, honestly, I, I think in certain respects, he could get back into it. He's 85. But but all that being said, um, let, let me shift away from extracurriculars. What do you think is most needed in the world today? So one thing, and I, I suffer from this myself, is like, uh, and maybe this is the, the, the time that we're living in right now, I can easily get attached to the news and like social media. And I don't honestly don't even have uh, very many social media accounts. I, just, just, I, I get sucked into, to, especially when, when people will share news articles. And I really wish that there was some way for news, news agencies to, to maybe pay for uh, misleading titles. Uh -huh, because, that'd be funny. Because this happens all the time. Uh, different people I know, sometimes we, we clash politically or just our outlooks on life. And uh, somebody I know will share a news article saying, oh, my gosh, can you believe this thing or that thing? And the, the title makes it seem very convincing that that – thing X is, is what they're speaking about. But when you read the article, it's actually thing Y. And it's very misleading because nobody reads the dang article. They're just passing around the headline. And these news agencies get away with it. And I just think it's causing so much division. Um, and the other thing I think, too, is what's most needed in the world is we're not perfect. I think there's this level of perfection that we're all trying to hold each other up to. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's also caused by social media where things are very fast moving 
and the the amount of likes you get or the the, the virality you know if your, if your video went viral then all of a sudden you know you're this person we got to realize people people make mistakes people are, are stupid sometimes and i think when we demand perfection of ourselves when we're not easy on ourselves that causes a lot of problems but also when other people expect that kind of perfection it, it's just impossible um, so I think especially in, in society today we, we need we need to be more forgiving of ourselves and others and we need to be able to read <laughs> because I, I think <laughs> I think we're not reading the news or just even books in general and I think we're focusing on the headlines and we're not digging deep I have found personally with the news that if I tell myself things like, hey, you can't look at the news till 6 p.m., that I tend to have a very, very peaceful day. And, uh, you know, there's certain social media sites that are just absolutely a cesspool. I don't know if it's the format that they do, but I actually do think it might be the format that it just sort of lends itself to toxicity. And the reason I say the format is there's this great book called Atomic Habits, which I'm just going to recommend to every person on earth. And this book basically explains the easiest way or the most effective way, excuse me, to change your habits. And the first way to do that is to change your identity. But then the second one is to change your environment. This is why, you know, people who are not wanting to eat any chocolate don't buy any chocolate because if there's not any chocolate in the house, well, it's not in the environment. So, you know, if I, you know, put some sort of a freeze on my social media, like I, I would say things like, hey, I can't check social media until 8 p.m. Then it just forces you to lead a different kind of a life, essentially. So I, I guess I'm hearing like the, the knock on social media. I'm hearing the knock on the clickbaity titles. And then then I really liked the last thing that you said, which is, we need to forgive other people. This whole thing of finding a tweet that somebody wrote in 1894 for crying out loud, you know, when Grover Cleveland was president, and now we're going to hold that against them. It's just utterly ridiculous. You know, well, just it, this- it, it makes a it makes the standard dangerous because if we're if I call you out, Tim, for something you did, yeah, in 1894. Then now that the onus is going to be put on you to then dig in my life to find the, the thing that, that I did wrong, however many years ago. And then eventually we're always just going to be digging. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, because this is how it goes these days. One person could say, hey, we should forgive more. Because remember what Gandhi said, that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Then the next person could say, well, in your ear, Gandhi, do you remember that thing that you did when you were five years old? You're a jerk. And so then pretty soon we're lobbing nukes at each other and it's all over. So, yep. well, that being said, um, what would you like to see different in society? What changes, if you had a magic wand, what changes would you make? I, I'm always enamored with kind of the, the European lifestyle. Uh, maybe it's because my wife is, is she's actually was born in France. Like she's oh. half French. Okay. Um, and I just, there's a, a little bit more of a, um, it's more mainstream to relax and to be comfortable and to slow things down and to take a break every once in a while. Whereas I think here in America, it's like, you got to keep rolling. You got to be put, you got to be grinding. If you're not, if you're not doing this, you're, you're losing out on it. And what are, you know, what are we doing it for? 
how, how much, how long is that going to, to take? You know, let's say you, you grind your life away and now you're 65, 70 years old. Now you could retire for hopefully 20 years, but maybe since you worked your butt off your entire life, you didn't eat right and exercise and form yourself in a way, all of a sudden you get heart disease, you get cancer, and then everything you save for is now, is now gone. Boom. Um, I think, I think being able to normalize rest and relaxation. And I think a lot of that's up to employers where we need to be able to, to give people more, more days off, more time off, um, to be a lot more sympathetic for for families. Um, especially like, you know, being a father, thankfully, uh, being at, at the school we're at, um, I had a pretty good, good go of paternity leave, but you know, in some places, depending on where you work, maybe the mom gets some time off, but if you're a dad, maybe you don't get any time off. Um, so I think just as a society here in America, I'd love for us to just normalize rest and relaxation. And I think it's really proven, especially in some very intense industries, um, where things are competitive and where things, you know, if you wait, you're, you're lost. Um, I think if we could spend some more time for leisure Mm. and some real rest, things would go in the right direction. Well, and there's there's uh, two different angles that I could look at that from. There's probably three, but I'm too lazy, so I'll just come up with two. I really like what you said, though, about rest and relaxation. There's a lot of situations where if people are more efficient, they can rest and relax. Uh, Henry Ford, 100 years ago, instituted the 40-hour week because he didn't want people working 50 hours or 60 hours or 70 hours, and he did it because he was an efficiency freak. He basically had created this assembly line model for things. Uh, he was paying his workers double of what everyone else was making. He invented the $5 day. Everybody else was making $2.25 an hour. Uh, the assembly line was designed scientifically to wring as much efficiency out of people as he possibly could get. Uh, part of the reason they went to the 40-hour week was, well, if you work 50 or 60 or 70, you're tired. You're just absolutely tired. And then you make mistakes. And then you break equipment. And then we've got to start things over again. Why not just get a fresh batch of workers in there? You know, so he kind of figured these things out. The opposite example is maybe an Andrew Carnegie who would have his steel plants going literally sometimes 12 hours a day. People would be working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That is 84 hours a week. That is half of your week. You know, so then you've got the other 12 hours to sleep, eat, and try to recover. And, you know, the thing is, if you make a mistake in a steel plant, you could pour molten steel on your arm and kill yourself. So these were things that Ford, who kind of came a little bit later than Carnegie, kind of yeah. figured out. So I, I guess, to me, just from a workaholic point of view, um, you probably are going to work a little bit better if you rest a little bit more. Um, I, think it, I think it's proven. There is, I don't remember the name, but there is a software company in Australia this is probably about 10 years ago that I, that I heard about this, but they were really struggling uh, to, to put out some, some good software. Okay. And so whoever was in charge decided we're going to let our workers, I think it was, maybe it was only one day a month or it might've been one day a week. They said, we're going to let our workers, you could, you come in and we're just going to have a party. There's going to be beer. There's going to be cake and you come into work and you work on whatever you want to work on. You're, you know, don't, it's not this grind. And I think they had so many good ideas and so many good projects coming out of those, those days 
that it ended up being extremely profitable for the company. And so it's, it's things like that where if you can let people do what they they want, give them some time, not that, that get rid of the stress of you have to meet these demands, uh, some good things can come out of it, yeah. Absolutely. I think the examples are endless. There's a book on creativity called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Um, as somebody who likes to write creatively, I found that this book actually is true. Uh, they would make some very specific recommendations that a lot of, for example, a lot of world-class authors would get up early in the morning and the most they would write would be three hours a day. A lot of people were writing maybe one to two hours a day and then maybe going off to their day job. But they absolutely were not, like if you're Stephen King, you are probably not working eight hours a day. You honestly are not, but the man is ridiculously productive. Um, and sometimes people would have a different job or they would do lighter work in the afternoon, like maybe they would be editing instead of actually doing creative writing. Uh, one last example I'll give is people competing in sports. There was a world-class Ironman that I'd read. This guy had come in first in the world. And he said, you know, initially he was just going to outwork and outtrain everybody else. Then he found out, no, that's not going to work because everybody here is almost world class or they came in second last year or they came in first last year in the world. And nobody here is going to outwork anybody else. We're all going to we're all going to push it to the nth degree. Then he said, well, I'll just get better trainers. Well, then what he found out was, no, everybody's got a world class trainer. What he found was the one thing people would not do was recover. They would not sleep. They would not rest. They, they would just not recover, essentially. And then he thought, that's going to be my edge. And then he used that to come in number one. So, See yeah. So, yeah, rest is a good thing. Uh, you know, just a little bit of planned laziness. I guess I'm too German in my mentality to not plan it. Uh, if, I, if I don't plan it, if I'm too spontaneous, then I, then I think, okay, now you're just being lazy. Okay. So, well, two last questions, Charles. Um, what are some things about you that people don't know? Well, my favorite thing to pull out whenever I'm playing uh, Two Truths and a Lie is that I was, I'm a former Division One college basketball player. Wow. And, I mean, I guess listeners at home probably don't, re don't know that I'm not 6'4". Um, but when I was in college, I, I met some of the girls who were on the women's team, which was a D1 team, and they needed practice squad players. Oh. And so I signed up to be a practice squad player, and I had to forfeit some of my, like my year of, a year of eligibility and, and submit to random drug tests and all these kinds of things. So I was technically considered a Division one athlete. And so I always, I always, especially teaching high school, I tell that to kids and, and they're at first like, wait, they, they give, they look at me and, you know, I'm about five, seven, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't look like I'm a basketball player. Like, what? Um, so that's, <laughs> that's what I always pull out. Um, but the other thing, like more seriously, I am, I'm, I'm always a really sensitive person and I, I really do get really invested in the lives of the people who I care about um, and love. And I think that's, that's something that's helped me be a good friend good husband, a good father, and a good teacher. Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, I'm sure you can beat me at basketball. I think I'm a little taller than you, but that would not help me. Uh, my last question is this. This is my favorite question. Um, you are 100 years old. 
you are sitting on the porch of your farmstead with your animals grazing nearby, and you are holding your loving wife's hand, and you are looking back on a great life. You've raised great children, and there are grandchildren in the picture. You've inspired people. You've added goodness to the world. What about your life has made you the most happy? Hopefully it comes back to those, those like little good things, kind of talking about the things I hope to get out of the projects I've been working on. You know, hopefully I could look back on my life and, and, and doing good little things and raising my kids who then raise their kids who then raise their kids. Kind of like a reverse pyramid scheme. If you can, if you can invest morally well in, in the people who you love, hopefully that can then get paid forward. Um, and then you could have such a wide, wide influence. And I think that's how you change a society for the better uh, of having good families. And so hopefully I could look back on my life and see, just see the ripples uh, of positivity um, in my own family. Awesome. That's a really inspiring answer. And Charles, thank you so much. This has just been very, very fun for me. Thanks, Tim. I've enjoyed it too. Good deal. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. Next episode on a Tuesday.